I want us to think about a question that I think is an important question that can kind of frame our time together. It's going to come up here on the screen, and without just blurting anything out, I'm going to ask you for a couple of you maybe to respond verbally, but I want you to just think about this for a second. A true friend is what? What are the attributes of someone who is a true friend or what it means for you to be a true friend to another? One who cares, her loyal. There when you need it. Honest. Honest. Yeah. What's that? A good listener. Absolutely. Um, thank you. This is uh, this is two for two now in this service. In that, uh, first off, everyone gets a trophy. All of your answers were right. Uh, everything. I mean, all of those things are right uh, in this. But what uh, what I want us to be thinking about, what I want us to be aware of today is that psychologists tell us that the most basic trait that is necessary in any genuine friendship, and beyond friendship, you can read uh, any relationship that has depth and meaning in your life, that the most important trait that has to be there is loyalty. Is that a sense that I believe that you have my back, that you are with me, that when I need you, you will be there. Even if sometimes that's speaking an honest word to me, But when I need you, you are there. Now, there are times in relationships and friendships where that gets strained and we have to reconcile, we have to apologize. But what psychologists tell us is if you don't do that, if you don't reconcile where there's not a sense of common loyalty, that there is a wound in your relationship. And no matter what the other traits are that you have, if that wound isn't healed, there is a limit to the depths that your relationship can take. I want you just to keep that in mind. I want you to hold that in your head today uh, as we read our scripture passage. Lectionary text today from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are, how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things that we need to just be comfortable saying out loud is that when you just read these eight verses, they're kind of odd, aren't they? Like Jesus is at a party and someone comes out and takes this expensive perfume and begins cleaning his feet using her hair. 
And if any of you are kind of going, well, maybe that's what they did in the ancient world, and we don't want to be culturally, have, do you remember any other examples in the Gospels of it taking place? No. This was not common in the ancient world. This is something that as we read it and kind of go, wow, this is kind of different that this is taking place. I think the disciples were likely thinking and feeling the exact same thing. I think they were kind of like, I don't quite know how we're supposed to respond to this and, you know, if this is okay and what this means and, and, and everything else. And so what I want us to do, rather than just looking at these eight verses, which is the lectionary text, is I want us to look back at the chapter before this in the Gospel of John because there's a number of things that are taking place that you've got to know and remember and hold on to today to make sense of these eight verses, Okay. So we're gonna bring uh, some of these points up here. There's five different things that I just, I'm just gonna walk through very quickly to go through chapter 11 so that chapter 12 here can make a little more sense to us, okay? First thing that we see in chapter 11 is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are siblings in Bethany, okay? So this is a brother, Lazarus, and his sisters, Martha and Mary. And what we also see in chapter 11 is that the, the gospel writer goes out of his way to say that Jesus is very close with this family. It's mentioned a couple of different times, how much they love Jesus and how much Jesus loves them. It's a very tight relationship that these siblings have with each other and with Jesus. And what we also see is that these events take place in Bethany. And that is important because as we get closer to Holy Week, as we get closer to the Passover, Jesus is journeying, as we go through this Lenten journey, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. And Bethany is in a whole different location than where we have seen Jesus almost always up till now. Where we've seen Jesus up till now is doing ministry in the region of Galilee, where he was born. Small rural area in northern Israel where he would teach, where he would perform miracles. But he is now intentionally moving to Jerusalem for the Passover. Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. And in modern day Israel, it's a town that is just in the West Bank. It is just east of Jerusalem. But for our intents and purposes, what we need to see is Jesus is leaving his home turf where he's known. And he is venturing into the power establishment of the people he is threatening, both the Jewish power establishment and the Roman power establishment. And so the fact that this is in Bethany is important. He's on the way. The journey's begun to the cross. All right, number two. <clears throat> we see that in the beginning of chapter 11 uh, that, that a tragedy sort of befalls this family and that Lazarus, the brother, becomes ill and dies. Now, what we need to know in this is that uh, there's this sort of this strange occurrence where uh, Martha and Mary write to Jesus when Lazarus becomes sick, and they say, hey, Lazarus is sick, and the disciples get this message, and Jesus is very close to Bethany, and they say, the disciples say, we should go. We can help. You can heal. This is what you do. And Jesus, in almost a kind of, it feels like a sort of blasé way, just sort of says, I'm not going to do that right now. It's going to be okay. And for two days, doesn't do anything. And in that time period, Lazarus dies. So that's also taking place. You've got to hold on to that, which leads us to number three. Jesus encounters Martha and then Mary. And I need you to pay attention to this and hold on to this. Because these encounters are different. What happens is when Jesus arrives in Bethany, Martha leaves their house where they've gathered with family and friends in mourning for their dead brother. And she, without Mary, 
travels on the road and encounters Jesus, encounters him there, and then says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she says, but I know with you, God will give you whatever you ask. So for Martha, there's this like little sense of maybe the story's not done yet. There's like an ember of hope still for her, of something. Mary is different. Mary does not leave the house when she hears that Jesus is there. And so Jesus calls for her. And when Jesus calls for her, Mary then leaves the house as well. But when she encounters Jesus, her response is different. What she says to Jesus is, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Period. She is feeling the pain of what psychologists tell us is the most important part of a relationship. I needed you and you let me down. You weren't here. You didn't respond. And Mary is seething in anger. And what is interesting is that when Jesus interacts with Mary and sees her pain, we come to the shortest verse in the entire Bible. It says, Jesus wept. That leads us to point number four of the five. At that moment, Jesus then commands the tomb to uh, be open, for the stone to be rolled away where Lazarus is buried. And for Christians, we need to see the Easter implications here uh, and imagery of what's taking place. He asks for the stones to be rolled away, and uh, Mary, in her anger, does not want that to happen. She says, I don't want this because uh, his body is decaying, and the smell is what she is concerned about. She doesn't want her brother to be remembered that way uh, uh, by the people who are there, but Jesus commands the stone to be rolled away and commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And after several days, this person who was dead walks out of the tomb, and the crowd that has gathered celebrates as we've not seen a celebration at Jesus. I mean, this is a different kind of miracle of one who has power over the dead. And that leads to number five. That celebration means that Jesus has to go into hiding. And this is how chapter 11 ends. Because it is seeing the reaction of the crowds to Lazarus coming back to life that it is at this moment in the Gospel of John when the the Jewish authorities look at each other and say, we have to kill him. We've been debating him before. We have to kill him because it's too dangerous, him going into Passover and all that that means into the city of Jerusalem. And this is where Caiaphas says it's better for one man to suffer than for the entire nation to suffer at the hands of the Romans. But all of that you need to know, and we can take that down, thank you. Uh, All of that I need you to hold on to because it helps put the context for chapter 12 and helps it to make a little bit of sense. Of why are they holding this celebration? Because their brother is alive again. And Jesus is the one that they are honoring. And, uh, and it makes a sense about Mary's kind of this reaction. She doesn't just walk out at a party and start doing this. This is the experience she has had with Jesus. And, and, and I want us to see that. And I want us to know that as we then encounter the text today. So I need you to hold on to this stuff. Okay? I need you to, I need you to, to remember it. All right. Now... In these verses in chapter 12, we're to see that there's sort of a dual tension taking place, right? There's this amazing celebration, and the expectation of the people is rising, but the tension and the threat to Jesus is rising as well. Both of these things are connected, and they're both happening at the same time. And what's different about the Gospel of John 
is that if, if you're familiar with uh, the scriptures, if you're familiar with the, the story of, of scripture, uh, Mary and Martha are people we've heard about before. And in the other gospels, when Mary and Martha, these sisters are talked about, the other gospel writers make an explicit sort of contrast of these sisters, right? Probably some of us have studied this in the Bible before. Martha's the one, like we see here, doing the logistics, handling the dinner, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet. She's different, and Jesus commends her for paying attention. What I want you to notice and think about in this gospel is different. Martha and Mary are not contrasted here. Martha's handling the logistics, but Jesus doesn't comment on this. What John does is John draws a contrast, and this is what I want us to be aware of today. John draws a contrast between Mary and Judas. Talking about one being the kind of true, faithful, devoted disciple, and Judas representing something else. And again, this is important as Holy Week's getting closer. Judas says, well, you know, when she, she, she did that with your, 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 your feet, why couldn't she sell that? We could, have, we could have fed the poor for that. Now, what we also see in the Gospel of John, which is different from the other Gospels, is that John, throughout his Gospel, keeps inserting himself into the text. He keeps kind of breaking the, kind of his role as recording, and he starts telling us why things happen. Um, so here he says, hey, when Judas said that, just so you know, he's not a good guy. He didn't care about the poor people. He did it because he was stealing stuff. And I don't know if you're supposed to think this way, but I'm going to just name this. I kind of wish John didn't do that here. Because it allows us to do something that I think is tempting and dangerous and I don't want to allow us to do today, which is to set up this sort of Star Wars universe where the good guys and the bad guys are really clear. And, and Judas is obviously just a bad guy. Right? I kind of wish John hadn't done that. I mean, there's a part of me going, really? I mean, if you knew he was stealing money and you still allowed him to control the money, that kind of seems weird. It feels like you should have handled that better. It feels like somebody should have been a good leader and stepped. I don't know if I really buy that, that you're all just aware he's stealing the money from the purse and day after day going, yeah, yeah, just let him keep doing it. Like, it, it kind of almost doesn't make sense. And I don't want us to just see Judas, especially with Holy Week coming, going, oh yeah, he's the bad guy. And so he like, doesn't care about poor people and he steals stuff and he's debating Jesus and we just can kind of lop him off as bad. I think there's something more complex about Judas that you and I need to pay attention to here. Because I actually think Judas is a part of us and I want us to assume for a minute that Judas meant what he said. What if Judas saw this act and in the discomfort of seeing this act of someone washing Jesus' feet with perfume and with her hair, what if Judas actually had a thought of, you know, there are a lot of starving people that could be fed for that. And I, and I, and I, might, I might be the only one that's going to admit this, but when I hear that, there's a part of me going, he's kind of got a point. Like, your feet are going to be dirty again tomorrow. There's a lot of people who are starving that could have eaten for that. And so I'm just saying it's not that weird of a comment to make. Anybody, will, anybody else willing to kind of go there? Or are several of you sitting there going like, I knew it. I knew I didn't like him. <laughs> it took eight years, but he just told us that he likes Judas. Never trusted that guy. <laughs> but there, I've said it. 
I, I look at this and I'm like, I think there's sort of a point to this. And what I think is important about that is I think that when you read Judas here and you kind of go, well, I see sort of what he's saying. I mean, Jesus kind of helps poor people. This is some of what he's done. He's welcomed people in that the establishment ignores. I think when we look at the contrast that way of Mary and Judas, we have to pay attention to something that's very subtle but very important. That Judas is doing something here that each and every one of us drifts towards every day of our life. And that is turning our faith into a religion at its core that's about rules. Turning our faith into a list of rules of what you are to do and not to do. And it is the most subtle and natural thing in the world as we set up systems of how things work to say, well, we've got to have some rules. And it feels like there's a part of me that Jesus is going, hey, could we refer to the handbook on page 31? We're supposed to help poor people. And it feels like this could be done differently as following a rule and system of what you told us to do. You and I do this every day. Remember in the Gospels when the lawyer comes and says, Lord, what's the most important commandment? Obviously the point of what you're teaching is telling us what to do, what rules, that's what the commandments are about. So what are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? What's the most important rule that we're supposed to have? We do this all the time as human beings. We do this all the time as Christians. You do this, I do this. What a real Christian would do is this. What a church is supposed to do is this. And what we lose when we drift in that direction is we lose what lies at the heart of what makes our faith truly unique in this world. And it is that at the heart of all that we are about is not a set of rules and not a set of doctrine and not a set of dogma and not a set of theology, but what lies at the very essence and core of our faith is a person is relationship, is connection. Christianity at its core is not about what you do. Christianity at its core is a celebration of what God has done. Christianity at its core is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we do. Christianity at its core is a celebration of what God has done. And it's much harder and murkier to set up systems and rules when we see that that's the base of our faith. That's why we keep drifting away from it because we can organize it easier when it's about rules. But Jesus doesn't give us that out. What does that look like in real life for you and me? Well, take the example that's here. The Old Testament and the New Testament have a ton to say about how we're to handle money. And I want you to know when I talk about this, there is no campaign that's starting. There's no pledge forms you're going to fill out. There's nothing I'm asking. Um, there's going to be an offering in a minute, but it's not connected. We do that every week, right? So just like all the divinity, like, oh, here he goes. We're in the middle of Lent. Now he's hitting us up for money. I'm not doing that. It's just that it's in the text. Church assigned the text to us. It's a lecture text. Don't even blame me for that. But how do we handle our money? Judas is going, well, the rules say that what we're supposed to do is help people who are poor. That's what we are supposed to do. 
This is the same way that with the best of intentions, you and I have conversations like this. So does tithing mean before or after taxes? <laughs> does tithing have to be to the church or can it be about for anywhere? What, tell me the rules so that I know how this is supposed to work. What, what, what are the rules? And see, the inference in those rules is not only am I just trying to find a rule, but it's like, what's the minimum I've got to do to just check the box? You see that? And then we have debates about the rules. We set up committees about the rules. And we have policies about the rules. And the denomination gets involved with the rules. And then the other denomination does this about the rules. And then we all like focus on the rules. What does it mean when it comes to how you have your money, your most precious, precious possessions to live from a place, not of what you're supposed to do, but what God has done? Mary is responding here to what God has done. And what has God done? Well, God has raised her brother from the dead. Yes. But why is she the one here washing Jesus' feet with her hair when her sister had Lazarus raised from the dead as well? Because Mary also is eating dinner with the one who she looked at and said, you have betrayed me. And the God who is powerful enough to raise her brother from the dead stands with her in that ultimate betrayal that no friendship and relationship can, can move beyond until it's reconciled. And that God weeps with her in that pain. Does anybody else see the miracle of that? That the God who is powerful enough to overturn death, Mary is confronted with the fact, I confronted that one and said he has let me down and he didn't throw thunder uh, uh, lightning bolts at me and he did not shame me and he did not tell me that I, who was I to be questioning him? He honored that place by standing with me in tears. I think Mary is the one at that feast that's going, none of you have any idea of the power and the beautiful love of this one. And all she can do is in an act of devotion, take the perfume that was to cover up the smell of her brother's decaying body and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. When you recognize the God who's powerful enough and loving enough to respond the way Jesus does, you don't sit there and go, what's the policy on giving? What's the rule about what I have to do now because what you've done? Christianity at its core is not about what we do. It is a celebration of what God has done. And so this week, as you continue this journey towards the cross, towards Holy Week, I want to ask you, does your life reflect the joy of what God has done? And I know you're sitting there going, well, that might be a little amorphous. And what does that really mean? That's the drifting to the rules. I want you to just sit. And I love drifting at the end of a sermon to like, here's what you need to do. But what I want you to do is just sit with the question. There was no rule book telling Mary, this is how you respond when Jesus does this. She just responds. Does your life look like a joyful response? And what would it mean as a Lenten spiritual practice this week to wonder what living that joy might look like? 
And we're set up for this because last week what we asked you to do was to tell the stories of how God's the hero of your story. How has God been faithful to you as the older or the younger son from the parable of the prodigal? We should be walking back in here going, you won't believe what I remember what God's done in my life this week. You won't believe what God shared. Now I'm just saying, what would it mean to respond? And if you need a little bit more definition than that, and again, no pledge cards going out here, think about what this text points to. Does how you handle your money, and I'm not giving you a rule, I'm asking you to sit in a question. Does how you handle your money, is that a reflection of the glory of what God has done in your life or is it following the rules of what you think you're to do? Or would it reflect not really sharing very much of anything? Those are just questions for us to consider. Mary isn't caught up in rules. Mary is caught up in a joyful story of what God has done. And I wonder what it looked like this week if you were caught up into living into that story as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us a way of living that is not telling us what to do, but that you have done more than we could ask or imagine. Give us imagination this week for what living a response might look like. And may we do it with freedom and joy for a God who has held nothing back from us. Lead us, guide us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.